oh, the biggest T-Rex ever, man. Okay, hello! It's episode 73 of the world-famous <laughs> Tetrapod Zoology Podcast. I'm Watto Watto Superbird, and I, po- <laughs> and I podcast with... Hmm. Penfold. <laughs> Penfold. So you've, actually, you've actually been Penfold before. No, I was Danger Mouse before. Oh, okay. Good, good, good save. Uh, so, after a short hiatus, episode 73, welcome to our millions and millions of listeners. 10 point. Check the graph. 10.3. 10. 10.6 and a half. 1100. <clears throat> yep. So, we have some follow up. Do we? Now, do you, do you want to know all the things you got wrong? Um, if you, Darren. Yeah. These are all from the. Uh, Episode seventy-two, the lo- the famous Loch Ness special, one of our most popular episodes, mm-hmm. right? Follow up. Nessie does exist, man. First of all, Nessie does exist. We were wrong there. Secondly, uh, the Loch Locky lizard. You suggested that there should be a monster from Loch Locky. Yeah. Guess what? <laughs> there is. There is. <laughs> but it's not called the Loch Locky lizard. It's called Lizzie. Lizzie, the Loch Locky <laughs> lizard. <laughs> <laughs> seriously seriously there is lock locky where's that flipping book uh jesus christ where did i put it so lock lock locky lizzie lock locky lizzie lizzie of lock locky i wanted to read a section from a really awful book in which i learned this but i've cleverly misplaced it i'll have to find it later um the thing, Tim Dinsdale didn't live in Croydon. He lived in Reading. <sighs> and it wasn't the Boston Academy of Applied Sciences uh. of Science. <laughs> oh, really? The, it, it was, in fact, the Academy of Applied Sciences in Boston. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, okay. Well, so, get that right. Serious error <clears throat> there. Okay. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> news from the world of news. Mm. Insert jingle here. Yep. Done. This is good. Well, I'm thinking, don't know about you, but I'm thinking this should be a dinosaur-themed episode in view of the, the main discussion thing I think we should thrash out. Yep. Okay. Cool. Um, and, that, and therefore, now given that, as we've mentioned before, there's always so many newsy things that are relevant to uh, what we do here. Uh, Tetsu Podcasts slash Tetrapodcasts. Yes, it does have two different names according to who's tweeting about it. Oh, no, you're quite active on Twitter at the moment. That's a trick. After a long hiatus of 30-something years, you've suddenly started tweeting fairly regularly. It's a trick. It's a trick? Yeah. I just queued up like 600 tweets. I'm not actually on Twitter, yeah. You're kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my God, John's actually actually on social media. No, I, re- <laughs> no, I realise that's the way I've got to do it. i got things to wow. say, I just don't have them to say all the time. So Wow. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what my problem is? With, I love Twitter. And my problem with Twitter is, is I could just tweet like 24-7 because <laughs> they're just sort of stupid crap coming into my mind all the time. So I ration myself 
to only tweet, only check Twitter once an hour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then tweet as fast so, as you can, like six thousand tweets. No, no. What happens? So what happens is you go on Twitter. All right. So like you know, it's the it's the new hour. Oh, it's now the hour of whatever the hours are, and then it's like. Then you spend half an hour on Twitter and then get off it and then and then check the clock a bit later. Oh, it's another hour. Like goes like that. So, yeah, so, so you've rationed yourself immediately yeah, half of your time yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. Yep. Good. Um. Anyway, news from the world of news. Dinosaur-y themed things. Yeah. Now, today is actually the first of April in the year of our Lord 2019. Um, so there's probably a crap ton of junk, sort of silly reporting out there. I haven't actually seen any April Fools' stories yet, but um, I'm not doing one. Uh, uh, those regular uh, people, uh, pe- regular uh, readers of Tetrapodology will know that it was a tradition. I did always do uh, a long article on the 1st of April, some of which are really good. But David Steen uh, convinced myself and a few other bloggers that this was actually like a bad thing if, you're, if you really want to be taken seriously as a science communicator. Think about it, because and I and I agree with him here. For most of the time, you're trying to push out stuff that you want to have some impact on the world, and you want people to take notice of you as a, you know, as a reliable communicator. And then all of a sudden, you put out something that's knowingly absolutely false. And his argument was that 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 just is not like a responsible model. And um, and that got me thinking that you know every single year there's always at least some people that do seem to think that an April Fool's joke is real. So maybe uh, plus of course they hang around long after April first. Yeah. So I thought okay, fine. Yeah. And also it's just whatever field you're in, it's just kind of tiresome. It means you can't read anything on the internet on April first, right? Because yeah. Mm. Okay. A lot of them are kind of obvious and funny. And some of them are a bit like, <laughs> is this April Fool's? It could be, but it's not that funny. It doesn't seem like it's probably true, but it could be. I just, um, I don't, I don't get the whole thing, to be honest. Never been much well, of a I, fan. Oh, I, I kind of, I kind of am a fan when it's done right, but I think most of the time it's not done right. So I think a lot of April Fool's uh, sciencey things aren't at all good or funny. Um. And there's also the danger that if something really weird, I mean, there are weird and surprising discoveries in science all the time. And if some of them appear any, anywhere close to April 1st, you automatically think, yeah, hold on, hang on, surely this is, surely this is. Yeah. Uh, there's a few, there's a few examples. I think the, I think the, we've discussed Brian Ford's aquatic dinosaur model. Uh, I think that initially appeared sometime very close to April 1st, didn't it? And uh, I don't know. Uh, anyway. Yeah. That was a bit of a diversion. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, the reason I was mentioning the date is what are people talking about right now in the world of, like, Mesozoic dinosaurie stuff? There's, uh, there's two things. Do you, what, what, do, you, do you have any take on this? Uh, no. In fact, I don't even know what the second one is. Uh, okay, well, so let's talk, well, let's go through these in the order written down. It's very important that people know that I've written them down. Yeah. First of all, Avimaya, or Avimaya. Um, now, this is relevant to what we're going to discuss a bit more in a minute. We're going to talk about um, dinosaur nesting behavior and egg-laying behavior and stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's a new 
uh, taxon of um, mid Cretaceous. I think it's I think it's Albion. Uh, in Antornithine, one of these so-called opposite birds from the Mesozoic, an entirely extinct group of archaic birds, the Antornithines. Um, this animal is called Avermeyer Schweitzeri, named after Mary Schweitzer. It was published in uh, Nature Communications by Alida Balil. Oh dear, I've mangled that pronunciation. Balil uh, et al. A long list of uh, uh, co-authors. An early Cretaceous in Antornithine. Aves, controversial, preserving an unlaid egg and probable medullary bone. So it's a small, uh, it looks like from the scale bar here, once it's sort of like a finch-sized little uh, good skeleton of a bird, lacking the skull. It's got some feathers preserved. It's the first fossil bird, I think, I think it's the first fossil bird ever that's got an unlaid egg inside of it. And it's got one really large egg, which they've reconstructed schematically as wholly circular. You can't tell what the original shape of the egg was like because it's distorted and crushed. But there's definitely like big chunks of eggshell inside this animal, which uh, the fact there's one egg in there is consistent with the idea that like modern birds and antonothenes were laying one egg they're producing and laying one egg a day so that shows that they've got a single functional overduct which is uh, not unique to birds we think that's also the case in some very near bird manoraptorans like druidontids but isn't the case in other near bird manoraptorans like oviraptorosaurs oviraptorosaurs do we, there's there's a specimen that's got paired you know uh, paired eggs preserved inside the body so they have two functional overducts mm-hmm. so um that's basically the the big thing here that you've got uh, an a whole egg crushed and misshapen but a, a whole egg preserved inside this animal and um it doesn't just have uh, eggshell it doesn't just have an egg but it also has medullary bone i think m- most of our listeners probably know what that is it's a special kind of like weird spongy bone that uh, birds uh, and other dinosaur groups laid down, females laid down on the inside of their the medulla, this sort of like cavity on the inside of some of the long bones. And that contains the calcium that's freed up and used for the production of eggshell. So an egg and medullary bone preserved in an antonothene, Avermeyer. And of course that name means like bird mother or something along those lines. And Mary, it's got named after Mary Schweitzer because she is the scientist who uh, first uh, reported medullary bone in a non-bird dinosaur. She first reported it, of course, in Tyrannosaurus. And then it was discovered uh, by other workers in uh, like Allosaurus, so in like a, a more stemwood theropod. And it's been reported in a sauropodomorph. And I think it's been reported in an ornithischian as well. So it seems to have been like a widespread dinosaurian trait. There's been a, a check for it in pterosaurs. And th- there's some structure in some... Uh, there's a uh, an asdarkoid pterosaur from Hungary called Bacconi Draco, which has got um, what looks like medullary bone preserved inside uh, its lower jaw. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a bit of like slop as to where, well there's a bit of disagreement as to whether it is medullary bone or not people have also looked for it in crocodilomorphs and haven't found it so at the moment it might just be a uniquely dinosaurian or uniquely ornithodiron thing the production of medullary bone but um 
But yeah, so there you go. That's quite interesting. Mm. But what I, what I wanted to know from this study, because the the paper includes a whole bunch of um, uh, discussion and um, like really nice images of eggshell microstructure. Um, includes all of that, loads of data on on that and what that means about what the egg, what the eggshell was like. But like to me, this egg looks disproportionately large for. It's disproportionately large, Darren, not disproportionately large, disproportionately large <laughs> compared to the size of the bird. Like, really big. Like, when I think of how big, like, an egg is in a sort of a finch-sized thing, finch-sized bird, so, like, say a finch-sized bird is like that big, right? And the egg, the egg, <laughs> the egg is like... What, what no one can see your finger. Big, yeah? You have to say <laughs> say something, like, about how big you it can, is. You can't... You can see it. Okay, say the finch is the size of your head. How big's the egg? If the finch is the size of, thanks, my head. <laughs> yeah. There aren't any finches the size of my head. Look, here's a ruler. <laughs> so I can say some numbers. Let's say the finch is 15 centimetres long, right? I'm going to say that the egg is like three centimetres long. Does that is that about right? That's that's. I'm, I'm thinking of. I used to keep. I used to keep canaries, and I had one canary called Jackie, who produced like sixty eggs until she died from producing too many eggs. Length of finch egg centimeters. <laughs> um, egg egg length one point six to two point one centimeters. Now that's for the house finch. Carpadesis mexicanus, which is not a, which whatever that's good enough. That's good enough. So that's my point. Okay. So mm-hmm. ordinarily, a bird that's like total length, as in like bill tip to tail tip, what total length means. Total length of about fifteen centimeters produces an egg of like, you know, less than three centimeters long. Yes. <clears throat> and yet this little anantona thing, which Okay, yes. they don't they don't provide a total length in the paper. People tend not to do that when they've got really fragmentary remains, I guess. I'm trying to scale it to my ruler. <clears throat> okay, I've done that. So that means the whole bird is going to be well, it's gonna be pretty close to fifteen centimetres. Like I say, finch size. And yet it's egg in diameter, they're reconstructing it. Oh, they're reconstructing it as just about three and a bit centimetres in diameter. Just It just looks to me like a disproportionately large egg. And, of course, if birds do produce disproportionately large eggs, that me- that usually is linked to all kinds of interesting things about the provisioning of the juvenile and an indication that the juvenile is precocial or super precocial because it's got like a bigger mm-hmm. yolk store and stuff, which is something that we would predict for anantornithines, given that they seem to have um, like buried their baby, buried their eggs in substrate, and then the babies like were precocial or super precocial. Uh, but I haven't seen part of the paper that discusses that. So, just no, to I give haven't... an idea of the size of the egg, I think we should say it's probably like roughly the length of the femur, right? It's the entire the, the diameter is roughly the same as the length of the femur or the tibia. I mean, it's huge. It looks like it takes up yeah. the entire um, thoracic cavity. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there you go. Looks All impossible. Right. 
Wow. It looks impossible. Yeah. It, looks, it, was like kiwi, it looks like kiwi size proportionally. Oh, yeah, which looks impossible, doesn't it? It's just, uh, yeah, it's insanely, insanely yeah. large. Yeah. Kiwi egg is about a third of the mass of the mother. It's not the biggest egg proportionally. No? There's, um, no, there's some storm petrels that produce slightly bigger eggs. Wow. Um, but, so it's, it's, there is a precedent for this within birds, but... Mm. Uh, yeah, but like, like I say, maybe it's not surprising in view of other suggestions about anantonathines and anantonathine reproduction. I'm spending way too much time discussing this paper. Okay. Um, so yeah, like, but I know, and caveat: I haven't read the paper word for word. I've like, I, I, I often skim these things and sort of half remember them, and then need to come back to them later. Okay, that is the end of that chapter. Uh, uh, one more thing. Bajardosaurus. Does that name mean anything to you? No. No doubt No doubt I'm pronouncing it incorrectly because I've discovered I don't know how to pronounce any of the English words. <laughs> <laughs> Bajardosaurus pronuspinax. This is in scientific reports by Pablo Galina and colleagues. A new long-spined dinosaur from Patagonia sheds light on sauropod defense system. You must have heard about this. Have you not seen the million, 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 billion pictures of it? No. So you know what? I'm looking at it now, though. Yeah, Yeah. everyone knows what Amargosaurus is. Amargosaurus is a dicreosaurid, famously with posteriorly projecting, posterodorsally, as in that's backwards and upwards, projecting spikes on the neck. We must have discussed it before. Yeah. If we haven't, I've certainly written about it because... Oh, this 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 thing, we've never discussed this one before, though. Well, it's brand new, but yeah. we dis- we must have discussed the Margosaurus. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The spines on the neck, do- were they connected by webbing and f- did they form two sails or were they projecting as, like, you know, spines that are covered in horn or something? Well, Bajardosaurus is another dicreosaurid, and according to the authors, this uh, dicreosaurid sauropod, diplodosoid sauropod, so relatively short-necked sauropod from Argentina, um, seems to have long projecting spines on the neck vertebrae but they project upwards and forwards mm-hmm. and so there's these like don't know if you can hear the dogs in the background something set them off <clears throat> ah! <laughs> <laughs> false alarm sorry I thought it'd be funny but it's not um, yeah. if only so this was a video say- podcast and we could have a great big mouth coming towards the camera <laughs> uh, the, yeah, uh, the, the reference to the, uh, the what's it called Gable Dogman footage we should talk about Dogman sometime <laughs> yeah, really we should. Should, yeah. it's hilarious stuff um, yeah so they say that the spines are there, there are these like forward projecting spines right mm-hmm. and that, so it's like really weird wow everyone's familiar with the Margosaurus backward pointing spines but now forward projecting spines Whoa, what's all that about well, the paper says that this looks like it was a defensive adaptation and that, that this animal would have, like, seen a theropod running towards it and so it would have, like, you know, stuck its neck forwards and impaled the, 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 the predator on the spine, thereby defending itself. Mm. And <laughs> it's like, really? Are you sure about that one? So uh, this, this feels like old hat now because it, it came out a couple of months ago and there was, like, a huge amount of discussion on... Well, certainly on in relevant Facebook discussion groups and presumably elsewhere online. I didn't actually write about it at Tetsu, even though I probably should have done. Um, yeah, 
you had basically a lot of people saying this, it looks really unlikely that these are defensive structures. I mean, they're so kind of flimsy. Um, and of course, my I suppose it is a bias. I'm not ashamed to say it's a bias. My bias is immediately to think that weird, extravagant structures like this, they look to me like they're ornamental, and I think they probably have a socio-sexual role. Uh, sort of ba- that's based mostly on an allergy with weird, uh, extravagant structures in living animals. They they seem to mostly have an extravagant. Uh, they mostly have a socio-sexual role when we they use in signalling of some kind. So I sort of argued for that, and I was surprised that they didn't really big that up in the paper because they just look so pathetically flimsy. But then a sort of also part of the argument is that the morphology that they're depicting here is, um, on the one hand, is sort of super duper over the top inferred based from a really fragmentary set of fossils. They've got one, one partial. Oh, neck yeah. vertebra from this dinosaur one and it doesn't even have the spine oh. uh, like complete yeah so yeah so and they're inferring if you look at that you've probably seen the reconstruction that shows the whole the whole head and neck of the animal and they're mm. showing a whole series of like 12 or 13 long spines so yeah, bigger ones than the one they've got yeah exactly yeah how how reliable is that and at the moment we don't know mm. i would say i would say it's a good guess i think it, li- it likely is probably you know yeah, yeah it's probably correct. Yeah, but then you also have people saying, "Well, hold on. What about the idea that it could be deformed and you know the, the uh, pla- plastic mm. deformation? You know, bones can get modified as they get yeah preserved and stuff." So there's a whole load more stuff we could say about that. I think that's enough. But, but one other thing connected to this is: Did I ever tell you about the French titanosaur cervical vertebrae I examined? in a collection where there are like fairly long neck vertebrae and then growing off the vertebrae and extending sort of in an arc projecting posterior dorsally so backwards and upwards with these long strap like spines they were like four times longer than each cervical vertebrae did i ever tell you about that no right i've got photos and i was blown away by this i thought this looks like it's a thing that's along the same lines as sort of like a margosaurus or also, you know, the Bajardosaurus since since published, but but a totally different morphology. And I showed it to a few sauropod people, and nobody really knew what the hell was going on. In fact, most people didn't believe me that they were sauropod cervical vertebrae. But haha, they were. So you're wrong, <laughs> idiots. And um, <laughs> take that, idiots. <laughs> it turned out they have now been published. They were published in Cretinous Research. Um, sorry, Cretaceous Research. Um, like I don't know, a couple of months ago. And they are actually uh, cervical vertebrae of a uh, an already named French titanosaur, the name of which I've forgotten, but it begins with A. And um, these were misplaced dorsal ribs, which look in the fossil look like they'd been fused to the cervical vertebrae. Hence my misunderstanding. So uh, I. I think I've probably told that to two people, so it's not really relevant to everyone else listening to the podcast, but I thought I should mention it. Okay, um, so the other things I've got there. Right. Scotty the T-Rex, which, which I've, yeah, I've yeah. labelled giant T-Rex. Let's keep, let's keep this super brief. Basically, a paper has appeared. It's by Scott Persons. Is he called Scott Persons? <clears throat> Scott Persons. Dr. W. Scott Persons and colleagues, and they've claimed that Scotty the T-Rex, who is not a new specimen, this 
this uh, specimen was discovered, excavated in, I think, 1994. They've said that it's bigger than FMNHPR 2081, the Tyrannosaurus specimen generally known as Sue, and older, bigger and older, better, stronger, faster. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Have you heard any of this? I have heard a bit of this, yes. Have you heard any of the sort of like, hmm, hold on a second, thoughts on it? Well, um, apart from the generalities of it, no, go ahead. Well, let's not mess around with the generalities. Let's get right to the specificalities. <laughs> How much bigger is, air quotes, Scotty? How much bigger is, air quotes, Scotty than air quotes, Sue? Okay, I'll tell you, it's roughly 5%, yeah. <laughs> which is equivalent to, like, a large bolus of feces <laughs> or <laughs> or uh, a bit of exercise it's like five percent really yeah we all know how much if we specifically discussed this in all yesterday's and this is the focus we were we cited studies by john hutchinson and colleagues on the fact that when it comes to getting the exact body shape right and the exact mass right and the exact density right of extinct animals there's there's like a i don't know like a 30% degree of slop according to like whether it was in good condition or poor condition, whether it was starving, whether it was well fed, whether it had been exercising a lot and had big muscles or whether it was a very lazy, under, undernourished individual that had weedy little muscles You'd, it's, it's just about impossible to determine those things from fossils and you think of like I think, you, I think you're a human's mass fluctuates by about five percent, according to like whether you run a marathon or something. So, um, for wild animals, five uh, percent. Yeah, my understanding at the moment is that that's well within the range of unknowable grey. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think what's you know, there's the whole sort of awesome bro, oh, the biggest T-Rex ever, man, sort of thing to it. But there is a, there is an interesting... Um, I want that at the start of the show, please. There's, yeah, that's um, the intro. There's, um, there is an interesting thing to get at here, and that a lot of um, the biggest theropods seem to be similar sort of size. And are we dealing with some sort of biomechanical... I don't want to say limit, but... Um, yeah, I'm not saying limit, but... Limit, right? Um, soft limit. Yeah, soft limit. And it'd be interesting if we found animals that were... <laughs> differed, ceiling. Yeah, differed from this significantly. 5% is not interesting. But if, let's say, you found a theropod that was 50% bigger or something, I think that <laughs> yeah. would be interesting, right? Not necessarily Calvin a T-Rex, Saurus. but something else, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, Calvinsaurus. Calvinsaurus, is that, yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to keep saying that to you, know what yeah, I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah. Calvin and Hobbes, so, obviously. Okay, well done. Pop no, I've got no, uh, no idea why. It's just because it's called Calvin. I presume it's from Calvin and Hobbes. Oh, he's, yeah. There's, he's talking about giant dinosaurs, and then uh, and then you know how sometimes you see his little his his what's in his mind, and you see little cartoons or dinosaurs, and he says, "But they are dwarfed by the Calvinosaurus." And there's this thing that's like fifty times bigger than a Brachiosaurus, but it's like yeah, theropod. Yeah. So, so I guess kind of interesting that it's so similar to the size of. <coughs> another very large T-Rex that is not drastically different. That's um, confirmation that yep. you might be getting to what is sort of the normal large size for a T-Rex. I don't know. Kind of reminds <clears> me <throat> of our large-ice darkids a bit, which seem to cluster around the 
same sort of size as far as we can tell. It's hard to tell yeah. what the biggest one is. Yeah, and uh, and the, the so so going back to the Persons et al. study, the 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 uh, their, their statement in their statement in the paper that this specimen is older, like older in actual years, not geologically older, because the specimen generally known as Sue is thought to have died somewhere around is it twenty eight years old I think something like that, and they're saying yeah it's older than that. Well, how much older? It was older than 28, it was possibly 29, possibly 30. <laughs> and again, it's like, okay, fine, yeah, all right. So I would just, without being mean to any of the researchers involved, I would just say that be careful with basically becoming known as people that are making claims that could be construed as possibly not being... <laughs> More grandiose than the prior <laughs> to put it succinctly. And on that sex very nicely into the final part of this discussion, Dinopocalypse paper. Yeah, I have no um, idea what this is about. Right. Yeah, so this is this is absolutely topical it like it's topical today, coincidentally April first, it was topical yesterday and it'll be topical tomorrow, but then it'll go away. So he says there's supposedly and I'm just gonna I haven't I haven't read the paper for those for those curious about this because that's part of the story here. Some people have read the paper because they've got special access to it and others haven't. A team of researchers led by Robert De Palma, who's already well known because of his lead, he's I think he's the lead author on Dakota Raptor, this large Hell Creek dromaeosaur. Um, he and colleagues have said that they've discovered a site that's actually the that preserves sort of basically the moment of like when things are dying in the uh, KPG event and there's like sort of this hugely like massively turbated like sedimentary thing where there's like you know sediments are all a mess Mm -hmm. and which is like definite signs of the sort of tsunami immediate aspects of the tsunami of the uh, asteroid impact and that there's like dinosaurs like ah, just just died and like a pile of dead fish has been mentioned and there's sort of animals perfectly preserved you have feathers in place or whatever it's a look of shock on their face that sort of thing and it's uh and it's really significant <laughs> and um there's so the the paper has been sent to a bunch of like media outlets and a bunch of like famous paleontologists who like you're the most famous so you've got to read this but no one else has seen it and some of the ones that have seen it have said doesn't none none of the hold on this paper doesn't doesn't contain any of the data relevant to the claim, and um, uh, the newspaper a newspaper article that has covered the story is uh, so I understand I haven't read the article myself I can't bring myself to but it's um basically classic Indiana Jones finally a hero has arrived on the scene for years classic trope that they used to that used to be depicted in a few. I don't, know if, I don't know if they still do this because I don't really watch the same kind of TV anymore, but there used to be this thing on documentaries when it was, for years, experts thought that blah, 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 setting up setting up of straw man argument, mm. blah, 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 for you. But then, Jeep door opens, <laughs> um, walking boot with a bit of dirt on it, stomps mm. on ground, but then, along came <laughs> Jeremy <laughs> and... And then he showed that dot 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 dot. He showed yep. that no one no one had ever considered this thing, which yep. actually everyone had. And it was really finally a hero. 
guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's that. It's like finally the guy with the cowboy hat arrived, and uh, so that is is yeah, jokingly called Dino Apocalypse, and um, uh, yeah, it's at the moment it looks like there's okay. At the moment it looks like regardless of the this this stuff about uh, how the people involved are portrayed. Okay, let's that is a problem, but let's not go there for now. Um. It does look like there is an interesting discovery, as goes the sedimentology of the site and, you know, the fact that it presumably is actually evidence of disturbance of relevant strata in preserving a time frame that's relevant to the catastrophic events at the end of the Maastrichtian, but whether it contains sort of – because there was an – the first thing I saw was an accompanying bit of artwork that showed like – sort of a tsunami and like like dinosaurs tumbling over and getting preserved in the mud like sort of t- knocked over by you know this disaster and apparently that's just not supported by the by the paper the actual paper by uh, Steve Brasati has seen it and said that it, it contains mention of one partial dinosaur bone <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is like that doesn't sound like a dinosaur graveyard to me <laughs> um yeah <laughs> Okay, so we don't know what this paper is, really. Um, it's an interesting idea that I've never really thought about before for some reason, that you could get a preservation like this, right? That you could get some real jumbled-up tsunami mess from the actual exact time. I've never really thought about that, that it could be it could be there. Well, it's um, not just that they, it could be there. It supposedly is there. There's, there's lots of publications about, um, like... So, so if the actual asteroid or whatever the body is called, if the bolide impacted the Western Atlantic somewhere close to the coast of North America and South America, then it's predicted that the actual immediate like shock waves, the uh, seismic shocks and the tsunami and stuff would affect, you know, strata within you know a few hundred kilometers of the blast of the impact site yeah. and there are supposed to be in that exact area um inverted strata because mm-hmm. they get knocked outwards and, and actually do turn over and get rocks get flipped their sequence gets inverted and there is i understand yeah. at that actually preserved in this along the coast of like um the uh, uh, what the texas uh, the bit of texas that borders the uh, Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. My, that's my that's my understanding. So right. um, yeah, I, yeah, mm. yeah. So they exist. I'm no geologist. Yeah, like, well, it's been claimed, but you've, you actually you are, aren't you? Because that's what your degree is in. <laughs> uh, sort, sort of, yeah. sort of. <laughs> one one of my degrees. <laughs> one, of your, one of your many degrees. Um, yeah. So it's sort of been claimed before. Um, but I guess what what is meant to be special about this is the jumble of dinosaur bones in it, right? And and, and fish. other and fish, yes, yeah. Uh okay. So yeah. So what? Yeah, it's always a bad sign when it goes out to media outlets and a few scientists, isn't it? Yeah, it Just is. Really, it, the it's... paper. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there's always alarm, alarm bells are ringing. Oh, okay, right. Uh, let's move on. Yep. Insert jingle here. Uh <laughs> Da, 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 porcelain Pekingese dog. 
Muse from the world of Darren and John. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I've, I've published a new paper, myself and colleagues. Um, Mariela Soledad Fernandez and colleagues, of which I am one, we published... A paper. Why didn't I open the PDF? I didn't flip and open the PDF. Uh, a mixed vertebrate eggshell assemblage from the Transylvanian Lake Cretaceous, published in Scientific Reports. There's a fairly longish article about it on Tetrapod Zoology, which appeared weeks back because we haven't podcasted since then. Uh, if you're a long-term reader of Tetrapod Zoology, and if you've listened to me discuss some of this stuff before, what sort of stuff, Darren? I don't really know. Um, in, in 2012, myself, Matthias Vermeer, Gareth Dye, Gary Kaiser published a paper in Netivisionschaften, as it was known at the time, uh, on a uh, um, like a lens, a lens-shaped mass of rocks and fossils that Matthias had found in Transylvania, about 80 centimeters long, 50 centimeters wide, 20 centimeters deep, a sort of like lens of like a mass full of thousands and thousands and thousands, haven't counted them, but many thousands of eggshell fragments, like 70% of this 80 by 50 by 20 centimeter chunk of rock is actually formed of eggshell. Um, and the eggshell, as we can determine from both of the few complete eggs that are found in it, a few bones that are found in it, and also the microstructure of the eggshell, all that egg belongs to Antornithine birds, which is why I thought it was relevant to talk about Ava Meyer at the start of this episode. And so we interpreted this as evidence for like a, first of all, there's an Antornithine nesting colony. Uh, the exact form of their nest is kind, I don't say up for debate, but is, no, I'm not even going to go there. Okay, so there's <laughs> loads and loads of eggs of them, yeah. and then nests of them, and then there must have been sort of like a, a sheet flood, a, a, a quick flood across the um, the colony that swept all the eggs uh, to like you know the edge of the colony, dumped them in sort of like a pool or lagoon, and uh, that's what got preserved. And so our, our 2012 claims that we found evidence for an, an Antonithine nesting colony, and you know. Um, yeah, there's, there's a consisting of a single species of bird that nested in a waterside environment, as do so many birds today. So this is that's interesting for that reason. And this 2019 study um, doesn't change those conclusions, but it makes the whole the picture of the site a little bit more interesting because it turns out that the eggshell doesn't all belong to one species, but there's actually at least four animals there. So we found from eggshell microstructure, we found in fact that a few of the bits of eggshell belong to a second bird that's not the same as the animal that makes up the bulk of the assemblage but there's also and we don't know what that second bird is just it's mm -hmm. just a bird of some kind um there's also eggshells of a crocodilomorph of some sort yeah. and there's also eggshells of a gecotin lizard of some sort now we don't know exactly what kind of gecotin lizard we don't know exactly what kind of crocodilomorph and their eggs are not that abundant the gecko gecotin um, eggshell is, I think, it, I think it's just a handful. Like it's just literally just a couple of bits. This sounds like and, a great television show. They're all friends, aren't they? It's like <laughs> we all nest together. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a big boss croc in the middle, That's and the they all stand on his back. 
her back. Her back because it's probably a probably a <laughs> probably a and, yeah. So yeah, you're exactly right. That <laughs> is exactly what we just say in the paper. It's yeah. like like friends, yeah. but with <laughs> Mesozoic <laughs> reptiles, birds speak reptiles, of course. Um, yeah. Well, so so we do say in the paper that there are real world as opposed to imaginary uh, nesting colonies where you have very different animals nesting like alongside one another alongside one another as in like they can be a few meters apart they're not literally alongside one another but you you've got some bird nesting colonies in south america where rias and penguins and tinamous nest in close proximity there's nesting beaches also in south america where there are green iguanas and caiman nests within a couple of meters of each other in fact in those cases the iguanas may actually deliberately nest close to the caiman because the caiman which obviously is a nest guard then actually protects inadvertently mm. is that the right word inadvertently sort of yeah op- yeah sort of protects the iguana nests as well as the, yeah. her own nest so there could be that sort of thing going on um there could also be nest parasitism of a kind there are geckotons geckos as they're generally known that um lay their eggs at the bottom of bird colonies um just because it's like a protected it seems because it's a protected site so it could be that sort of thing um there's there's a few possibilities there, but um, yeah. So that, that's the that's the whole thing. This this was um, inspired by the observation of, of uh, paleontologist Eric Buffato. I think he he said he noticed that he thought some of the bones in the assemblage weren't of an antornithine and might be from a lizard. And um, so when we looked at the eggshell microstructure, it's like yeah, there's that's true. There's some there's some lizard stuff in here. There's some croc stuff in here. So yeah, there's a. Like I say, there's a Tetrapod Zoology article, a multi-species nesting assemblage in the late Cretaceous of Europe. But given that we're talking in April, it was probably published back in, well, I guess probably probably way, way, way back in March. <laughs> Wait a second. Wait a yeah, second. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it was, I know it was a couple of weeks ago because a lot's happened since then. And then the other news, muse from the world of Darren and John, there's a new book out. But I can't reach it. It's all the way over there. I'm going to have to take my headset off. Okay. Hold on. Uh, I worked extensively with Dawn and Kindersley over the years, as, as has been mentioned here a couple of times. And this is part of, it's part of a series called What's Where on Earth? The wor- I find that very difficult wording to get my head around what's what's where on earth and it's basically like a series of maps mm-hmm. showing you where things are like where's the eiffel tower well we go to the page about france it's, oh that's where on earth the eiffel tower is and this is what's where on earth dinosaurs and other prehistoric life and um so for example we take an animal and we've got it as mesosaurus from the permian and we've got like paleo maps based on the Blakey paleo maps, and we show where the animal lived, and we had to extrapolate its range, which was quite speculative, but this is what we had to do. And then we talk about why it occurs there and what this would have meant and the sort of environment and stuff. Uh-huh. And oh, I'll say we, it's me and my good friend and colleague Chris Barker who I can sort of cheekily regard as one of my students because I did like lecture to him and stuff when I worked at the University of Southampton. We've published stuff 
together. I'm sure I've spoken about the Neovenator study that Chris led. We're working on other stuff right now, which is very interesting stuff to do with theropods. Um, and yeah, I think it's quite an attractive book. Mm-hmm. It's not bad at all. So one other thing I have to say about it, you're, look, so you're looking at this here. What do you think? I can't really see it very clearly. Looks okay. Oh, I'll hold it closer. It looks okay. Oh, no, it looks quite nice, actually, huh? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, <laughs> they, well, you can't see it, really. It's very blurry. Um, yeah, okay. So they like yeah. illustrations rather than, like, like drawings. Yeah, they're CG. They're mostly CG renders done by people like James Cuther, whose CG dinosaurs are all over the internet. But, um... Yeah, Peter Minister, Adam Benton, Stuart Jackson Carter, Simon Mumford, a whole bunch of people who illustrated the CG dinosaurs. And and this is part of a a story that I definitely spoke about, or you and I both spoke about a few episodes back, the fact that Dorling Kindersley, which is a non-trivial producer of books for children, they're like one of the uh, most... um, prolific producers of dinosaur themed books for young people um they until very recently had like a photo library consisting of sort of 90 percent offensive was <laughs> like really bad stuff yeah. and um and i spent the better part of i reckon 2017 like it's months and months and months of work basically getting everything replaced and um and I th- and so when you look at this book, given the nature of our listeners, our audience, hello audience, I would say this is the sort of book where anyone that knows stuff about the life appearance of dinosaurs will look at this and think they're not the best reconstructions ever. These aren't the these aren't the works of one of the one of the most influential paleo artists in the world, like Bob Nichols or mm, Emily, Emily Willoughby, or <laughs> I can't think of any others. Yeah, that's pretty much um, it. Yeah. Did I say Mark Witten? Uh, oh, okay. I'm kidding. John Conway, I suppose, as well. He does. He's done some dinosaurs. That are just about okay. Um, they're not sort of like maybe on that level, but they're sort of good enough for you to think these actually aren't that bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, which I think is a there you go. Mission accomplished. <laughs> well, I think that's what we want to aim for for like the majority of books. You don't. Yeah. Yeah. Not not these that bad, but actually looking like what we actually think dinosaurs probably looked like is great. It's a big win. Huge win compared to, like, what, uh, 10 years ago, which wasn't Thank you. all that different to in terms of our knowledge, but, jeez, God, it Thank was, you. the situation was dire. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying that. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> it's all it's down all to me. to you. <laughs> Sounds tremendously arrogant. Something interesting has arrived in the post. Uh It's Glossy Magazine. It is Focus. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Focus. I believe it's Italian. Now, I already write write regularly for uh, the BBC... Focus magazine published in this country. But this article is called 
se non si fossero estinti avremmo vinto no olore I didn't know you spoke Italian and si, wrote si. Italian apparently multi multi <laughs> <laughs> Jesus I'm sorry avrebbero continuato a evolversi accanto ai dinosauri e le opinioni di Darren Nash paleontologo dell'università di Southampton um, yeah yeah so it's, a, so it's basically a what would the world be like if dinosaurs if none of the dinosaurs hadn't gone extinct hence this weird picture of a, a cartoon cave person with a <laughs> With a, with, a, with a James Cuther stocked Tyrannosaur. Um, yeah. So it's like, it's a spec bio thing. I do have, there is a partial translation online. All right. What the hell was the point of that? Um, so now I've written down here main event dinosaur nesting and egg laying discussion. Yes. Because I figured, so off the back of that Fernandez et al. Uh, in Antonithy nesting colony paper and Avamaya and a number of other recent discoveries, there's there's some interesting things that we can say about dinosaur eggs, dinosaur egg-laying and nesting, and the whole, you know, uh, early development of dinosaurs as juveniles in general. And the thing that... And I, and I, have, to, I have to think about this a lot because... Uh, where I am quite often involved in projects where we have to like reconstruct a biology life cycle for dinosaurs, for non-bird dinosaurs, the data and the conclusions from different studies is often quite contradictory. Mm. It's often completely contradictory. And therefore, you have to sort of like decide that we're going to take this on board and we're not going to take that on board. And I still haven't got my head around what we should and shouldn't sort of pay attention to and uh, and therefore I think I'd like there to be more discussion of this because as far as I can tell at the moment and it, um, I apologize it's not clear yet what I'm talking about but my concern at the moment is that you see these markedly different conclusions but you don't then see a discussion where people say oh well you know author x is this and author y says this and this is totally something we can't resolve so let's just wait for more discoveries or they say well actually but but that's because author x is completely misinterpreted this and yeah yeah, it's sort of um it feels like a quite a little subspecialty in a specialty and it feels like I uh, I often I don't know very much about this so I look look forward to the discussion in some ways but it, I just feel like I have no way to evaluate the evidence much like looking at looking at you know people who don't know anything about paleontology looking at paleontological arguments and just other, you know broader paleontological arguments and not getting well that person's that's yeah that is genuinely controversial we don't know that yeah. And that's just a crank, right? And it's so obvious in some ways sometimes. And yeah, okay. So yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So uh, so I, I will get to what, exactly what I'm getting at here. So so first of all, a couple of generalities. So dinosaurs laid eggs. We have no indication that dinosaurs ever evolved viviparity, the ability to give birth to live babies. And this is probably true of archosaurs in general as in like pterosaurs and croc line archosaurs, everybody seems to be laying eggs. Mm -hmm. 
there have been the there have been the occasional mentions that certain dinosaur lineages might have given birth to live babies. But this this is always on spurious grounds. Like, wouldn't it be nice if they did it? Or <laughs> they've got really wide hips, so therefore they could have given birth to live babies. It's like, yeah, but you can have wide hips for a whole bunch of reasons, more to do with like the shape of your guts than anything to do with um, egg laying. And um, it's not impossible that viviparity did evolve in a few lineages here and there. I would say that it's most likely for the uh, highly marine, highly aquatic Thalatosuchian crocodilomorphs, and I do say crocodilomorphs deliberately, as opposed to crocodiliforms. <laughs> crocodilomorphs more inclusive than crocodiliforms because, yeah, blah, 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 that's another tangent. Um, there's reasons for thinking that they quite possibly could have evolved with parity. Uh, it's been suggested that Hesperornithine birds might have evolved with parity, but again, just because, like, wouldn't it be nice if they did? There's no, like, data supporting it. Mm. I think that I think it is contradicted by some possible eggshell from those kinds of birds, and I've got an article somewhere online, somewhere on Tetsu, which is about the whole sauropods gave birth to live babies idea, which is completely bogus, is completely contradicted by like a billion, billion, billion eggs and babies and nests and everything but was a popular well but was a promoted idea during the 70s and 80s mostly by uh, robert backer and yeah spurious grounds and uh, like i say there's an article about it's whole old tangent i won't i won't go into that um we know that near relatives of archosaurs there were some other archosauromorph lineages that did evolve viviparity some of the protorosaurs sort of tanistrophius like archosauromorphs they mm-hmm. were viviparous so if viviparity could evolve in those why could it not evolve in in archosaurs i'm going off at a tangent now i didn't really want to specifically discuss that whole subject but um so we think that that all dinosaurs are laying are laying eggs with a you know probably a fairly hard calcitic eggshell but there's a study which i haven't read which was published within the last couple of weeks on the eggs of i think it's an early jurassic sauropodomorph like a massospondylus type animal and the uh, eggshell is really really thin and really really porous and hardly calcified at all like it's a tiny like super thin layer like i don't know a few microns thick or something of um calcium which uh is it calcium or calcite yikes yeah it's it's same thing same thing darren same thing a really thin layer which reminds me of what's been said for some pterosaur eggs we do now have quite a few pterosaur eggs from three or four different pterosaur lineages their eggshell appears to be really thin so much so that the eggshell itself was probably flexible so this really thin egg Shell and and porous eggshell as well um, is in keeping with these eggs being buried in sediment. So the paper on this new sauropodomorph uh, set of eggs, I, I presume it's more than one. They say that this shows that they actually say this is true for like early dinosaurs in general. The eggs were really thin shelled, possibly flexible shelled, and were buried in sediment because if they're that porous. That indicates that they have to um, be protected from the air. They have to be buried in like damp sediment, and the eggs like it, you know absorb uh, moisture from the sediment during their development. But th- this, these authors, and I presume this is Robert Rice and colleagues, they've previously published these early sauropodomorph um, uh, weird little babies of massospondylus. Really weird. They're totally different from from adults. You know, profound onto genetic 
changes. Um, their, their inference that this should be true for dinosaurs in general is like, maybe, maybe that's true, but equally so, maybe that's specific to the sort of podomorph lineage and it might not be really reliable to extrapolate it to, you know, all dinosaurs. I, I, I don't know what the, you know... Haven't, like I say, haven't, haven't read the paper. I just, just remember being aware the study exists. Um, but that is the sort of uh, habit that you would predict for dinosaurs, I think. That, based on what we know about pterosaurs, based on what's present in crocline archosaurs, I think it might be a good idea to predict that dinosaur ancestors did, sorry, that early dinosaurs did bury eggs in sediment and did have thin shelled eggshell Mm -hmm. and then later on like other systems developed like uh not burying the eggs but having the eggs exposed to the air but in like a a vegetation nest or even just sat on the sediment surface and the adult sat on top of them that sort of thing um and obviously thicker eggshell is i mean we're still talking about eggshell that's like you know a millimeter or less ordinarily um, yeah, that obviously re- re- evolved uh, later, or maybe maybe re- repeatedly in different groups. I don't know. The, we've got we, we we've discussed on the podcast before the fact that the Mesozoic world, in the right kinds of environments, there must have been like millions, millions of eggs. We do have direct knowledge of this from some sites, most famously Alcamuevo in Argentina where there's the, the sediment for metres and metres and like square kilometres in extent is yeah, millions of eggshell fragments, possibly possibly billions, I don't know. But um, I remember Louis Chiappi, the, the scientist who's led most of this work, him saying that the rock concern shouldn't be called sediment, it should be called, I don't know, think of a word that's, that means... Ulith. Yeah, it should be called like an egg layer instead of like a sediment layer or rock layer because it's like the bulk of the sediment, the bulk of the rock is formed of egg shell produced by these titanosaurs. The amount, I mean, just it's an it's a a significant thing for the the local area. The fact that tons and tons of material produced by dinosaurs affected you know the actual makeup of the ground and therefore things like local chemistry and stuff. I think that's a really cool story. And also the knock-on effect that it would have had ecologically, the fact that, you know, there's a glut. We're, we're all familiar with these cases where sea turtles um, come to certain beaches and produce, you know, like construct hundreds and hundreds of nests. Yeah. Obviously, it would have been even an even bigger thing in historical times before people started, like, you know, killing off sea turtles. But the the number of other animals that come into the area you know birds and raccoons and whatnot you know all these things and humans as well that come in to exploit turtle eggs now think of that in the mesozoic you just would have had a glut of pterosaurs and theropods and all, all kinds of animals coming in to eat these are millions upon millions of eggs so the titanosaur eggs of which there are like i say a huge number of them not just fragments but there's also like in a complete nest of these things um, they seem to have it seems that titanosaurs and probably all sauropods excavated a trench which in a 
big animal would be like a couple of meters long and about you know I don't know half a meter or a meter wide, and then the mother then lays somewhere between ballpark somewhere between say thirty and sixty eggs, mm. and then buries them, and then they are, and then abandons them. Well, that's a dirty word. I don't say abandons. She just doesn't. There is no post. Well, well, we assume there's no post-hatching parental care that she then leaves and the either the heat of the sun warming up the sediment or in some cases geothermal heat actually incubates the eggs. And we think from studies done of eggshell, um, you, you can get some rough idea of you know how, how long babies were developing and stuff from what's going on with their teeth and stuff. It seems that incubation in big dinosaurs you're probably talking about sort of three months of incubation which is fairly long but not ridiculously long mm. um yeah the babies then hatch out together and uh, then emerge simultaneously which means the same thing as what i just said and then uh, like hang out together in little gangs yeah <laughs> And I'll stop. I'll stop at that part of the life cycle because I don't want to start talking about too much about juvenile behaviour. That, that's that's a that's another another subject. But then we've got evidence for other dinosaurs, non-bird dinosaurs, that there was post-hatching parental care, and that adults probably are bringing food to the nest. Uh, that's again. That's after the after they've hatched. But also, for God's sake. <clears throat> what I want to talk about the bit where they uh, like either guard the nest or sit on the nest. I think um, eggs and nesting is within your remit here. So <laughs> if there's still a nest, yeah. we're still talking about yes. So yeah, yeah. So what colour were dinosaur eggs? Non-bird dinosaur eggs. Ah, uh, green. Make them harder to see. Right? Yeah. Huh. Like a model to see. Yeah. Well, so the assumption has always been that all the eggs were sort of white or off-white. Hmm. I think partly partly due to lack of evidence. I think people didn't have a reason to think otherwise. Although I'd be curious. I can't remember. I can't remember seeing artwork where people had speculated that well maybe the eggs were like this and sort of covered them in spots and maybe they did do that I just can't remember it so I think the default assumption was that they were white um, that egg colour is one of those things where the same for the coloration of animals in general where you can come up with a whole bunch of like fairly sensible rules but when you actually try and apply them and when you look at the diversity of things that actually exist it's like nah there's like all other there are there are either no rules whatsoever, or there are other confounding factors that have disrupted them. So, for example, in birds, it's said that white eggs are belong to birds that nest in cavities, burrows, bury their eggs. Megapodes, of course, are the only living birds that bury their eggs because they don't. If you nest in a tree hollow or in a burrow doesn't matter that your eggs are bright white because nobody's going to see them yeah whereas if you lay your eggs out in the open they can't be bright white because of course then they'll shine they'll stick out a mile and would attract predators okay that all sounds sensible but then ostriches right ostriches produce 
big eggs that are just left lying around on the surface and they're white. They don't have any camouflage whatsoever apart from an adult sitting on them. Which maybe that's the thing. Maybe that's if you're sitting on them as well, you don't know. Mm. Yeah. But, um, but, but, yeah. But, um, it turns out, so by detecting chemical traces preserved in some Manoraptoran dinosaur eggshells, some workers, and I, I can't remember the names of the authors, I know that Mark Norell was on one or two of these papers, they were able to show that some of the Manoraptoran uh, eggs, those belonging to sort of Oviraptorosaurs and Dromaeosaurs, dinosaurs like that, their eggs were green or bluish or greenish bluish or turquoise, somewhere in that sort of ballpark, which... Um, is interesting because that suggests that they weren't. So what the, we know that non-bird manoraptorans, chewodontids, oviraptorosaurs, presumably by inference, dromaeosaurs and therizinosaurs, etc. We know that some of these animals constructed a sort of like raised circular rim, produced, laid the eggs sort of arranged in a circle in the middle sometimes with the egg sort of implanted vertically in the sediment, which is kind of odd. Remember that they're laying the eggs two a day or one a day. Truodontids only seem to be laying one an egg. Oviraptors laying two a day. And so if they've got the eggs in a ring, they're presumably manipulating the eggs somehow. They're like moving them into position. So they're arranging this like ring, which invites all kinds of speculations as to how they actually what do they actually do? Do they actually like physically sort of push the eggs around and like move them with their feet or mouths or something? Oh. And then we actually know that the non-bird manoraptorans folded up their legs and sat on top of these eggs, like so with their body against the eggs. And there's been a there was a little bit of discussion back in the early 2000s as to that the initial assumption is that this is brooding and the animals are using their body heat to incubate the eggs but then some worker said no they're not brooding they're just guarding them and it's like well wait a minute so th- this is this is linked to the whole argument about um dinosaur physiology it's like so some of the people that were objecting to the use of the term brooding and i'm talking about john rubin and colleagues who have not come out of this whole phase in history as the good guys their whole objection to the term brooding is that they said, well, no, no, they wouldn't be using their body heat because you're saying you're therefore assuming that they're warm bodied. And it's my response to this. Again, I don't want to make this about me, but my thought to this has always been, well, hold on. Who says you need to be? I think, okay, I, I do think dinosaurs were essentially, you know, air quotes, warm blooded. I do think there is good evidence that they were mostly endothermic. But even if they're not, it's like, that's not. You don't have to be generating oh god, I hate this argument about physiology, it's so messy. Um so even if you are air quotes cold blooded, you still have thermal capabilities. You still can retain heat. Yeah. Or there's you can thermal inertia. Sunscreen. Yeah. Exactly. There's all kinds of stuff. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff. So so even if you're not a warm blooded, air quotes warm blooded, even if if you're not generating heat internally and retaining it internally, there's still an advantage as goes thermal physiology, as goes thermoregulation for your eggs. Yeah. Even if you're like a sheet of card, 
<laughs> there is still yeah <laughs> it still makes a difference as goes whether you're keeping your eggs cool or warm or insulated yes or just whatever right like yeah just sitting sh- shading them from the sun during the day and getting off at night would make a huge difference to this thermal stability yeah. getting sorry yeah. getting on it yeah or whatever yeah make a huge yeah. difference to this thermal stability of eggs right yeah Right, and even if they weren't, even if these animals weren't, air quotes, warm-blooded, let's say they're not, then, well, there are lizards today that warm themselves up in the sun and they've got babies inside them. These are viviparous lizards, so the the mother warming herself like speeds up the development of the babies. Or if she's an egg layer, she warms up her own body and then she transfers her body heat to the eggs. Mm. So she is incubating them with with her... body temperature there's all that so this whole argument never made sense it was never logical that they tried to sort of cast it as a you silly paleontologist with your silly ideas about um warm-bloodedness it's like no it's like even if they're not warm-blooded thermoregulation is still definitely a thing you should consider here and the idea that oh they're not thermoregulating they're only brooding sorry 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 they're not brooding they're guarding Mm. that was also their argument they're guarding it's like, so which animals guard their nests? Okay, so crocodilians and king cobras guard their nests. Are you saying that that's that that is mutually incompatible with the concept of like temperature control? It's like absolutely not. It's like everything we know that builds a nest, so far as I can recall, in in tetrapods, everything that builds a nest is in some way having a thermal interaction with the eggs. Like crocodilians, for example, remove or add on new um, uh, vegetation, have some uh, con- concept. They have some um, sense of like what's going on with the temperature of the nest. They actually can you know, feel it. They can detect it. They sort of stick their snout in and sort of detect the temperature or whatever and do something about it. Are you going to say they're only guarding the nest? No, it's not like it's either, either or. So that whole debate was a big fat waste of time. It was a huge big straw argument and yet it are things can things be straw argument straw man argument whatever straw person argument yeah. um and, and yet it rumbled on for like a whole bunch of like le- it was in the letters pages of science in i said early early 2000 it probably wasn't it's was probably mid 90s it was 1994 or thereabouts but then if these non-bird manoraptorans and this might go for the ornithischians we've got that where we've got nests as well, like hadrosaurs and horned dinosaurs on as well. It might, but let's put them to one side for, for now, right? So non-bird manoraptorian theropods, like truodontids, oviraptorosaurs, there's one possible nesting um, a bit of evidence relevant to nesting dromaeosaurs. There's one of the, I think there's a Deinonychus specimen that's got like a eggshell attached to the underside of its gastralia, which indicates that this was an individual that was like, sat on top of eggs there's also an alvarez saw where there's a, a bunch of alvarez saw eggs and there's also like a partial like folded hind limb so there's the eroded remains of what was probably an adult sat on top of an egg filled nest as well there so seems to have been a widespread manoraptoran trait this like sitting on a sitting on an egg filled nest uh-huh. habit do we imagine that these dinosaurs built this ring-shaped structure put the eggs in the middle do they then just sit on top of the eggs? And then when they get off, so if they get off the nest, you're looking at a nest full of eggs. Or have they piled vegetation on top and they are 
then sitting on top of the vegetation or do they put sediment on top and they're sat on top of their sediment and i would say this is one of the things where at the moment this is what i had in mind when i said that some of the opinions are completely contradictory because you've got authors saying supporting these alternatives so charles deeming who seems to know what he's talking about as goes eggshell microstructure and all kinds of like correlations based on big data sets about what um, embryo and egg morphology means for incubation style and growth of juveniles. He says that eggshell porosity in manoraptorans, including overaptrosaurs, is such that the eggs must have been covered in sediment. So even the big mama, the Sitipati specimen, even that specimen, you know, sat on top of a nest of eggs he says that in that there must have been sediment in between the body of the adult and the egg now there's the sediment so far as i can tell so as i remember isn't obvious it does look like body to egg contacts so that's his point of view he's saying now they must have put sediment on top or presumably vegetation would would work the same and um well i've always yeah. thought that you don't yeah i've always thought that you don't have the vegetation preserved just because the particular circumstances means that yeah you get eggshell and bones but you don't have skin and feathers and you don't have plant material either all those things have just rotted away for whatever reason um but that claim that that take on non-bird manoraptorans is i would argue i think contradictory to this discovery that the eggshell is camouflaged if the eggshells are greenish or bluish greenish or i think there's another study saying that some of the eggs were blotched they actually had like you know spots and stripes on them and stuff and i'm pretty sure that's right but i can't remember what study it is if that's the case for some of those eggshell then why would the animals be burying the eggs mm. or covering them cover them covering them in sediment or vegetation that seems to me to be not in keeping with the idea yeah, it's it's like if the eggs are camouflaged, then surely that's because the eggs are, apart from when the adult is resting on them, they're exposed, right? Mm -hmm. So this seems to me to be a total contradiction. And I've noticed that there's there are a community of workers that go with the deeming conclusion. That's just a small bunch, a short list of workers. But there's another list of workers, mostly Americans, who have gone with the exposed eggs the eggs are camouflaged and you would be able to see them like like say an ostrich or an emu nest um, um mm. so is there any compromise possible here because um at some point presumably this is how things work there had to be less burying involved right mm. and so you put less sediment on and less sediment less vegetation I should imagine there is some point where you're covering eggs to a certain extent, but you want a little bit exposed, maybe just to press your body against them to impart heat or something. I don't know. Is this considered that maybe they just left part of the egg exposed and that's what they were sitting on? Because yeah, that intermediate thing must have existed at some point, whether it was a long-term thing that, you know, lots of animals used. I don't know. But, yeah. Seems to me that that might get rid of some of this contradiction. Yeah, that's true. I'm also trying to think what the data is in 
uh, if you imagine like this from a sort of tree-based perspective, so sauropodomorphs, sauropods and all their relatives, so far as we can tell throughout the whole of their history, always buried their eggs. Mm-hmm. Ornithischians, well, we've got really good um, nests for obviously hadrosaurs. What else do we have in Ornithischia? There's a few, I think there's a few claims of non-hadrosaurian nests and eggs. Like there's a few things like from the early Cretaceous that might be sort of hadrosaur-like, but they might be from non-hadrosaur iguanodontians, kind of iguanodon-style dinosaurs. There's obviously the... Uh, <laughs> I was going to say there's the protoceratops eggs. But as most people listening to this will already know... There's going to be some caveats coming here, but I don't want to say all, all, but the better known of the so-called protoceratops eggs turned out to be misidentified oviraptorosaur eggs. So this claim that there was protoceratops in association with protoceratops eggs, no, the eggs were from uh, a theropod, they were from oviraptorosaurs. But then there was a counterclaim, which was that in actual fact some of those protoceratops eggs this comes from like mostly Russian workers who are experts on eggshell microstructure. They said that some of those protoceratops eggs really are protoceratops eggs. And that was that was back in the early 90s, and I don't really know ever what the outcome of that was. Um, but there's uh, also um, there's a North American horned dinosaur, Brachyceratops, where there's a nest with juveniles in it and some eggshell. So that suggests that yeah. Uh, so that if that's if that's all interpreted correctly, as far as I can tell, as it is, so far as I can tell, it is. Then we do have some eggshell from horned dinosaurs from Ceratopsians, but it doesn't really tell us anything particularly interesting because, uh, at least as goes egg form, because the um, obviously the the juveniles are hatched. And in that nest, by the way, the juveniles are pretty big. Yeah, I think they're. There's like I think there's four of them, and they're about like it's all from memory, and I haven't read about it for years, and I've forgotten a lot of the details. My recollection is the Brachyceratops juveniles are like a meter long, and they're all preserved in this nest, which leads me to think that okay, they did not, they were not a meter long when they hatched. Even if Brachyceratops is not like the world's biggest horned dinosaur, even if it's like only say rhino-sized. It's probably going to hatch at, you know, like sort of, I don't know, rough guess, like 30 centimetres total length for the, the, the hatchling. So if they're a metre long, they've been living in the nest for a little while. And however long that was, I've got no idea whether that's, you know, presumably that's weeks, some weeks. Yeah. So if they, yeah, if, so this leads me to think um, that, that that is actually evidence for extensive post-hatching parental care in Ceratopsians that the babies are staying in the nest and if they're staying in the nest then getting to like a metre long then presumably or, or presumably maybe too soft a word you know definitely they were being provisioned their parents or a parent was bringing food to them in the nest which of course has been suggested for hadrosaurs the group of ornithischians that we've got the most number of um, eggs and nests and stuff and the argument there sorry go on no go ahead Oh, you're sighing. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 um, yeah, the take there 
predominantly from best paleontologist in the world, Jack Horner, is that um, you've got like fairly well-grown babies that, again, I think, I don't know if they're like a meter long, but they're sort of not hatchling sized. And there's evidence from, well, some of this is a bit iffy, but because uh, the initial claim was that their teeth are worn, so therefore they've been eating in the egg, sh- uh, eating in the nest. Mm. That's bogus because it turns out that they wear that they wear their teeth done even before they even before they've hatched. Actually, grind their teeth together even when they're in the egg. So, mm-hmm. worn teeth does not prove they've been eating. Then it was said that trampled eggshell in the nest proves that they were living in the nest for an extended period of time. Well, maybe, but eggshell also gets broken up into tiny fragments. It just does, right? It doesn't, doesn't yeah, it really tell to, you anything. Yeah. yeah. And then there was a claim that there's um, some, like, fossil vegetation actually in the nest, like pollen or, 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 I don't know, seeds or something. And again, it's like, well, maybe that is – maybe that's proof that an adult was bringing vegetation to the nest as food to the babies. But isn't the claim that – these animals couldn't sit on their eggs therefore they were incubating them or piling vegetation on and if they were putting vegetation on the eggs then you'd get vegetation preserved in the nest and also if you get like microscopic bits of vegetation in a nest you could just get that anywhere anyway because plant material gets blown all over the place in the wild in in the wild Mm -hmm. in nature so again i'm not really sure what the what the model is there i mean i kind of I think that enough people whose knowledge I respect do seem to think that Jack Horner was just about right and that the there is post-hatching parental care. The adults probably are bringing food to the nest. The adults probably are guarding. The juveniles are staying in the nest for an extended period of time. Uh, enough people seem to have bought that for me to think it probably is likely right and, and it would match with what we see in Ornithischians. But um, given that hadrosaurs and ceratopsians almost definitely are not sitting on top of their eggs no no no, they're definitely not sitting on their eggs like i say even brachyceratops even if it's small even if it's only rhino size that's not sitting on its nest so that must mean that they are burying their eggs in Mm -hmm. sediment and or vegetation yeah so that would mean we've got the buried condition also for ornithischians so uh, inferring it from two data points so then, in th- so then in theropods, well, I don't want to go into the whole ornithoskeleta thing, as goes whether theropods are part of the same lineage as sauropodomorphs or same lineage as ornithischians. It doesn't, but, it doesn't actually matter for this argument. No, you're right, it doesn't. But it, but some, so it must be somewhere along the theropod lineage. There's this transition from a from the covered or buried ancestral state. Mm. to the aerially exposed brooding adult state. Although confusingly, the evidence from Mesozoic birds is that early diverging birds, so non-crowned birds like in Antornithines, the evidence is that they were burying their eggs. Mm. And megapodes do, right? Yeah, megapodes do. But the the argument within ornithology has always been that they are just one lineage of weirdos just doing their own weird thing. Mm. It's, it's, there's no reason for thinking that that's an ancestral trait for any of the crown bird lineages. 
remember megapodes are one lineage among like several within galliforms game birds you know, chickens and pheasants and etc yeah. and none of the other galliforms do that none of the other galloanserines do it and it's like you know paleonaths don't do it which are sort of you know uh you know outside the clade that includes galliforms and all other birds so it must be a specialization of of megapodes so is it that so, so that so that piecing all that together it implies a fairly complicated um set of transitions it suggests that somewhere within the therap- somewhere along the theropod lineage presumably within manoraptra there was a or 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 close to manoraptra there was a transition from a buried state to the non-buried state with the adults brooding the eggs and then w- when when birds evolved the birds start out by burying their eggs even though they've just descended from like non-buried state and then they some birds then no 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 no, no. so so birds from the buried state then uh, evolve or revert to whatever you prefer the non-buried state which is where you've then got like tree nesting and all sorts of things like that evolve and then you've got one bird lineage megapodes that then evolve buried state hmm. again if you're going to push um, exposed state further down the tree let's say we say a good section of Manoraptora is non-buried then you still have to like Therizinosaurs some of them are so big they're not sitting on the nests right yeah, um, yeah. And uh, even some of the... Um, well, that's actually outside of uh, uh, Manoraptora. But I'm thinking of things like um, Ornithomimids and uh, Ornithomimosaurs. Um, they also get pretty big. Um, yeah. If you were going to look at exposed things, exposed eggs, then you have to... Hypothesis, hypothesize a re-evolution of burying probably uh, a couple of times. Yeah, so it's going to be a pretty complicated state anyway, isn't it? <laughs> maybe, maybe this was actually just really flexible within theropods, and maybe they could very easily transition between like several different nesting styles, mm. depending on body size and local eco- ecology and the environment they are in. I think that's also possible. There is this. Um, Allosaur nest from Lurinha in Portugal, where there's like, uh, like hatchling allosaurs and some eggshell. I think there's actually like an allosaur embryo preserved in a partial egg, but I can't remember. Uh, Octavio Mateus and colleagues, I can't remember if there's any data associated with it that tells you whether it was a buried egg. Mm. But I, but yeah, I, I've always assumed that it was. I don't know why. Well, yeah, so yeah, I mean, we've got to hypothesise that they did bury their eggs, don't we? Or at least cover them with vegetation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Well, and again, so yeah, that would make sense if it's a pretty big animal and whatever you know, whatever it is, Allosaurus or Lurinhosaurus or whatever. Uh, Lurinhosaurus or Lurinhanosaurus. Oh God, one's one's a sauropod and one's a theropod. Lurine. I think it's Lurinhosaurus. <clears throat> Yeah, you should assume. No, Lurine Hasaurus is the sauropod. So, Lurina, Lurina. Oh, just forget it. The, those allosaurs, whatever. Yeah. 
there, yeah, uh, I, I forget what point I'm making there. But there was also a paper recently by a Gerald Meyer, who's uh, one of the world's certainly most productive paleoornithologists, particularly on paleogene birds. And his name isn't pronounced Gerald Meyer. It's God Ma. <clears throat> God, ma. <laughs> no offense, Germany. Um, God, ma says that um, that there's evidence that, like, I, I, I can't remember the paper. It came out like two years ago. It said that enantornithines and other uh, stem birds, like birdie stem birds. Bear in mind that all extinct dinosaurs are stem birds. They're all on the bird line. Um, they were like too big to sit on their eggs Mm -hmm. and therefore they must have buried them and I've forgotten the details in the paper but I'm thinking what? what? huh? Mm -hmm. wait a minute wait a minute it's like anantornithine a really 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 big a really big (laughs) anantornithine might weigh as much as I don't know let's say really big 10 kilos why are you saying that their eggs can't take their weight I, I need to check the paper it might be that they say that the eggshell is too thin to take even, you know, a couple of kilos. Maybe mm. that's maybe that's what they're saying. Maybe maybe that's the point. Um so what was the strategy of uh do we know anything about Epionis and some of the really like super ostrich sized birds? What were they doing? Good point. And uh we don't. We like so, so Apionis, Madagascan, like giant extinct, recently extinct ratite, um, generally considered like quite well known as goes its egg laying behaviour because so many eggs have been found, and the eggs are generally found in sand dunes, and uh, there's like whole strata, there's like whole layers of like thousands, and thousands of eggshell fragments of these things. It's not, it's not difficult to go and collect enough to piece together a whole egg. I'm sure most everyone's seen the David Attenborough thing. My friend Paul Stewart, the world love cameraman, he's a, he did the same thing. He just went to one of the sites and just you know easily picked up, up, up enough to piece together a whole egg. But although we've got hundreds of them and they all come from the same general area and they're buried in sand, it's not clear what the actual, you know, nothing about the actual nesting mm. behavior is known. So far as I understand, there is, uh, there's at least one paper that, um, discusses a, an embryo. And I can't remember if that gives any insight on nesting behavior. I don't think it does, but you would assume from the behavior of other ratites, because Apionis is undoubtedly a ratite deeply nested within the group, seemingly most closely related to kiwi, you, it would seem that they did like produce a small clutch, as in like one egg, possibly two, and um, sit on it. And Moa, the also recently extinct giant ratites of New Zealand, they seem to have produced also small clutches, like you know two or three eggs. And I think there's one um, nest site where there's some something about the site that appears to show i think because the i think because the eggs were sort of like in close proximity that oh for god's sake that's a terrible argument it doesn't work at all i'm going to check in uh, the worthy and holdaway book here i think i think that it's also thought that they also sat on their eggs so there's a danger here that you sort of like expect on the one hand, you kind of like expect to see, or you or you always assume what's seen in uh, the close living relatives. Yeah, it's just you in, know because 
you know, Epionis is getting to be a pretty big animal. It's sort of... Yeah, hundreds of kilos. Yeah, horse-sized almost, right? Um, 400, 500 kilos, yeah. Yeah. Actually, I'm just reading the Wikipedia. The largest one, 730 kilos. What? 730? Yeah. That's However, that. in That's 2018, the largest... E- oh, yeah, new taxon. Weighed up to 730 yeah. kilos. Oh, well. Yeah, presuming if we presume that's right, I mean, yeah, that's extraordinarily heavy to be sitting on an egg. Yeah, um, you know, maybe a small uh, ceratopsian. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's making me think about, yeah, how big is a therizinosaurus? I'm noticing here, so I'm looking at um, Worthy and Holdaways, The Lost World of the Moa, which is sort of the main go-to guide for Moa stuff. And, uh, yeah, they say, interestingly, that Moa eggshell is is comparatively thin. 0.0... I forgot that, that's inches. 1.78 millimetres thick. Some of them have a thickness of two mils. Yeah, I'm not sure that is thin proportionally really so but they don't do they say anything interesting they don't seem to say anything about nesting whether they think this was uh yeah breeding and eggs i got a whole section here on breeding and eggs several pages but it doesn't seem to say there there is there's a nice popular book on moa which i don't have i've only got photocopies of some of the pages and that I'm sure that shows Moa sitting on a nest, and so therefore it has been established and it is known. <laughs> joking, joking, because I'm sort of... I'm, I'm always concerned when some of my favourite, like, oh, we know that they were like this. They must have been like this, and it's, yeah, because you saw a picture of it once. <laughs> the best scientist ever. Yeah. Huh, okay, so, no, that's a total blank right there. Um... Yeah. So then, what does this mean? So, for like tyrannosaurs, for example, you know, what does a tyrannosaur do? Does it build a nest mound and then guard it? Does it build a nest mound and then leave it and play no role in parental care? Uh, does it leave exposed eggs and like rest its head on it or something? We just we don't really yeah. know. We don't have the fossils either way. But um, so I would say. Yeah, I mean, I've sort of said all the things that I sort of had in mind. The fact that we've got some idea about what the ancestral condition was like for dinosaurs. The fact that we've got some idea of what sauropods were doing. Um, although, when I said they don't practice any post-hatching parental care, our assumption is that they produce these trenches, produce this large clutch of eggs. Now, interesting question. Did they just produce one clutch of eggs or did they actually produce two or three uh, sort of like in the same, over this, a period of a few days? We, we don't know. I was surprised to learn recently that leatherback turtles, which produce like large clutches of eggs, I don't know about you, but I assumed that all turtles, uh, and here just talking about marine turtles, and, and it goes for the others as well, I guess, but you assume they dig a nest, they produce the clutch, done. They're out of there. Mm. For leatherback turtles at least, there's new data. I don't know if it's been published, but you can find it on a website devoted to leatherback turtle biology, and I've forgotten the details, but it's pre. You know, seem, they seem to know what they're talking about and to have done the research. They said that their studies show that leatherback turtle females uh, like have to keep on – they revisit the beach like about two or three times. They don't just discharge all of their eggs in one go. So they've got a full clutch – 
pretty much, I guess, uh, I, I don't know over what period of time the eggs are developed, whether all the eggs are ready to go or whether they sort of have to wait a couple of days for new eggs to mature. But um, they seem to produce a clutch and then come back like in like a day or two and produce a, the rest of the, another part of the presumably the same clutch. And uh, so, yeah, could yeah. it have been the same for sauropods yeah. rather than them just producing one giant clutch, which we've always thought, do they actually produce a few nests, all of which are the same air quotes clutch? OK, don't know if they're the same clutch because they're not the eggs aren't actually together. But um, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. And then if they do that, right, so they've produced their their nests, are they then out of there and they just like baby turtles, the, the, the sauropods are the babies are left to their own devices or does a parent possibly even both parents do they stay in the area and sort of like keep rough tabs on the site because i think for some non-bird dinosaurs we've got evidence for theropods for example and in fact, this is true for others we've got evidence for yes whatever we've got evidence that the babies are precocious the babies when they hatch they're able to look after themselves they're able to walk and run and probably capture things and forage for themselves but um, the fact that post-hatching parental care is so widespread in archosaurs at least suggests that adults may have been in the same approximate area. Like even sort of, you know, the mother or father is sort of, you know, tens of meters away and will potentially respond to, say, a threat predation to those babies. The the, the adult will like rush in and, you know, chase away some other predator or will respond to distress calls as is well known in crocodilians interesting in crocodilians of course is that um it seems that individuals that even aren't the parents will respond to the distress calls of babies mm. so you have to wonder if that was a thing in dinosaurs did they automatically respond to the distress calls of a baby even if it's not their own offspring um yeah um uh, at the moment that is just ground for specula- uh, speculation so an area of speculation. And that gets into the whole juvenile behaviour aspect as well, right? Which I think is an interesting topic and we should probably discuss it at some point. But yes, okay, not now. I accept no. this. Um, yeah, so I think it's pretty interesting. We don't really have a very good idea of um, uh, the strategies dinosaurs used a lot of the time um, and that the evidence is probably too spotty to really tell us Although it feels like one of those things that might get – it feels like it could have a rapid uh, improvement given a few yeah. examples, a few sites, um, you know, some new ways of getting at the evidence. It's pretty interesting. I just wish I could un- – I understood the stuff a bit better. Well, but I, I mean, I don't consider that I understand it. I certainly don't understand it well, but the, the thing is that there are so few bits of data, and like I said, some of the studies are contradictory. There isn't really that much to understand. Yeah. There's just like a smattering of like bits of evidence, and it's like, how do we actually interpret this? My issue is that, like I've tried to, just tried to explain. I'm sorry, it's such a bad mess. I never do plan these things. It's like it's really difficult to get a coherent picture out of it because people haven't sat down and said said which of these things you need to remember and take home, and which of them are probably true and um it's all it also feels like a lot of the things are at this well not at this point they they basically seem unknowable given the problems that we have with the fossil record so in 
all yesterday's, you did a painting that shows two microraptors with a, an arboreal nest, a, tr- a nest they've made in a tree, a nest made out of vegetation. And there's no evidence for that whatsoever. And the, the text actually states that, you know, we don't know that they did this. The current thinking is that they didn't. That's against, you know, the existing knowledge that we have. But how can we confirm or deny tree building, uh, nest building in trees? Uh, we're, we're basically probably never going to find such nests in the fossil record because as I've said before, or after I published that Journal of Zoology paper on the fossil record of bird behaviour, how many... Okay, we're, I think you can be fairly confident that birds build nests in trees, right? I think I, I'm going to I'm going to go out there and look. I'm going to say that. I'm going to say I reckon I reckon right that birds build nests in trees, right? No, no, no that's only happened in the last like 30 years, man. It's just a hunch. <laughs> it's a brand new bit of behaviour that just develops. Yeah, yeah. Um, you find me a single bit of evidence of a, tree, a bird nesting in a tree that's older than 30 years. I dare you. <laughs> it's a hill I'm going to die on that they did that. Well, how many how many fossil examples of such nests are there? Two. Do you remember the answer? The answer is one or possibly two. Yeah, there's like one or possibly two actual preserved bird nests, actual vegetation nests. Mm. And one of them's not – well, not, actually, wait a second. There are two, and neither of them are in, net, are in trees. One of them's a duck nest, and it appears to have been built on the ground, and the other one is the nest of a grebe or flamingo-type animal. And that also would be a like a floating nest or a nest built at the edge of the water. So, yeah, tree nests in trees. Nah, there ain't nothing. So, if that was present in Mesozoic dinosaurs, whether they be birds or non-bird dinosaurs, we're probably almost not probably we're almost definitely never going to know it. So, we're therefore restricted to only having these buried these are sediment these nests built at the the sediment air interface which is the right set right <laughs> so yeah yeah so so i like i still feel that yeah sort of the, the there's a possibility of a whole bunch of weird things um yeah and it feels yeah. like there probably is i mean because you look at the tremendous variation of what uh, you know, dinosaur morphology and just just sheer differences in size and things like this that might lead to different strategies that you just think, well, hmm. um, what about no no nests at all? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that we didn't discuss that, but that's also a possibility. Literally sitting on your thing and being penguins seems pretty odd, but you know, you never know. Um, well, well, even so. Apart from penguins, which it's, it's only isn't only emperor penguins that do that. Mm-hmm. Only the emperor penguin, which is an ice breeding specialist, sort of has its egg perched on its feet with a sort of like special like belly flap thing that covers covers the egg. Uh, I can't think of um, other birds that do a similar thing because everything else that does not really construct a nest still has a sort of like a nest area yeah. that's that's there's enough of a entity for it still to be called a nest so for example swifts will just fly into a cavity whether it's you know in a building or in a tree hole and uh, they'll just you know lay their eggs like lying around on the on the ground essentially on the surface but that's still like a 
a I don't know. <laughs> it's not it's not a nest at all. You're right, but it's still a spot. And um, various shorebirds that produce what are called scrapes. It's literally just you know like a tiny indentation, a tiny concavity in the in the sediment, in the pebbles or the, the sand or whatever. Again, technically, that's maybe not a nest. Basically, but... stop the eggs rolling around, it's rolling out or rolling yeah. across the ground or whatever. I guess, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, it'd be interesting. Uh, it... It's interesting there aren't animals. You're probably going to say, "Well, duh, there is that carry their net eggs around." I suppose you just evolve live birth then, don't you? Um. Well, there are fish. There are fish that do it, but you know, yeah. obviously they're fish, so they're swimming around. Yeah, there are pipe fishes that have their eggs like stuck to the sides of their bodies, and and presumably the seahorse condition of having the eggs contained within a pouch. Um, sort of evolved from that but in tetrapods yeah there's ovoviviparity or ovovipary whatever bloody well, whatever word you want to use ovoviviparity ov yeah and there's, there's like keeping your eggs inside you and then true viviparity that means that there's no point in carrying shelled eggs around mm. apart from the occasional uh, the, the occasional bits of alleged transport of eggs where you know i think i think we covered this before and i wrote about it recently on tetsu the few cases where birds are supposed to like physically move their eggs uh by like, grabbing them in the mouth or something mm-hmm. which are super dodgy and probably didn't ever ever really happen but um hmm. yeah okay oh and uh, yeah and, and and obviously uh in frogs there's um midwife toads walk around with their egg the male keeps the egg strands like wrapped around his hind limbs but again they're not shelly eggs so they're not at all applicable to what dinosaurs and other archosaurs could have done yeah yeah so all right so i guess that sort of wraps it up really doesn't it that's think so kind of yeah i i want i wanted to talk about the fact that there's this contradiction particularly this thing for manoraptorans you know seems to me that the evidence nowadays is indicating that the eggs were exposed and they were not covered but that is like i say contradicted by some other studies and i haven't i'm not aware of research of i'm not aware of like articles that try and marry up this uh contradiction it's almost as if people just just ignore the other side when they're talking about their own what their own take on the data Mm. one of those things where you've got as always there's like 20 bits of data and if you just look at three of them you can construct your own homogenous your own like specific case (laughs) but i don't even gotta talk about that stuff i don't think that's yeah the world is so complicated that you just can't work that way yeah well if the things just seem explicitly contradictory then what do you what are you meant to do uh yeah Mm. Mm. uh Mm. unless they're not well, they're clearly not, right? Some someone's misinterpreting something somewhere, or there's a third way, or something. Because... Yeah, someone's got some splaining to do. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right, shall we wrap it up? Yep. Because it's time to move on. Do you like my look at this? Look at my cap. Uh, oh, Caprasuchus, isn't that good? Uh, you're not holding it up high enough. I can just see the top of its head. Yeah, oh. I can't see myself. Where am I? Oh, there I am. Yeah, hmm. see. 
Caprasuchus by yeah. Papo. Really yeah. nice model. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the... And next on Darren show and tell, here's the Kyoto <laughs> Loch Ness Monster toy. <laughs> I love those toys. I love the ones that try to get everything into it. You know, it's got the humps, it's got the got the, the horns, uh, yeah. it's got everything. Well, I'm not going to talk about Loch Ness Monster at all because obviously I just the well, we, didn't we didn't we not talk about it recently on the podcast? Uh, Plus, remember. there's a new article. So I promised three book reviews, and the second one just appeared on, at Tet Zoo. Uh, not for April Fool's Day, but for the day before it. Have you seen this Safari Velociraptor? Hmm. It's That's like good. really good. It's like the best, uh, the best toy Velociraptor. Okay, um, you know what we didn't do, John? Hmm. We didn't do. We did news from the world of Darren and John, but we didn't do. News from the world of John. So we'll have to do it next time because you've oh, been yeah. doing some new art things. Well, new art things, yeah. Which we'll do it next time. All right. So who are you and where are you in the digital realm? Well, I'm Penfold. I'm the sidekick of Danger Mouse. Strangely enough, <laughs> you can find my website at johnconway.co and my Twitter is at the John Conway. Don't know why I chose that name. It's a bit weird when my real name's Penfold, but... You know, <laughs> sort of sounds like I made up a name that sounds like a real name, John Conway. Yeah. Like almost someone could be called that. It's really odd, but there you go. That's my stick, <laughs> I guess, as a small right. hamster. Is he a hamster? <laughs> he is am, a I hamster. A ha- am I a hamster? He's a hamster. hamster. Yes. You are a hamster. And have <laughs> I said in the in the pilot, Penfold has a Welsh accent? Yes. So how do you explain that? I am Welsh. Yes, <laughs> mate. <laughs> I've uh, I've had to get rid of that accent to uh, <laughs> to appeal, appeal more broadly in the show. <laughs> they were quite racist back then. Uh-huh. <laughs> against the Welsh. That's why they built all those castles. <laughs> Don't English. offend our Welsh listeners. Don't offend many. <laughs> I'm not offending Is, the no, Welsh sorry. listeners. <laughs> so I can only hear every one in ten words because it keeps coming out. Great. So ap- apologies if the audio in this episode is really bad. We're having lots of trouble. It says poor connection again. <sighs> Other podcasts aren't like this. They are. Are they? Mm. I wouldn't know. I don't listen to them. Yeah. <laughs> Kidding. I listen to loads of podcasts. Sasquatch Chronicles. Um... <laughs> yeah. um... <laughs> Just kidding, other podcasters, you know I listen to you. Uh, my name is Darren Nash. No, no, <laughs> Nash. It's pronounced Nash. 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 Pronounced right. When I was on Richard and Judy, Judy Finnegan had never seen the word Nash written down before, so she said, well, we're joined by Darren <laughs> Nash. <laughs> so you idiot. You're on live TV. Don't pretend you know it. Even just fudge it. But at least she got it right. She did get it right. Because mostly when people get confused, they say Nash or Nash. Nash. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that introduction to the new scientist thing. How did she, she said Nash. Nash. I blog at Tetraport Zoology, which is currently hosted at tetzoo.com and is going from strength to strength. Did you know, John, 
Penfold, sorry, an 80% increase in visitors last month. Mm. Seriously, what, yep. I don't know what the hell's going on. Well, I do know what the hell's going on there. It's the sheer quality of content is what's going on there. <laughs> yeah, and yes, I, you're right. It was quite shite before that. So. <laughs> 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 you finally stepped up your game. Um, would you believe me if I said that the script to The Empire Strikes Back includes the words Moon Jockey and Cubby Hole? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I tweet at The mist-shrouded X-Wing fighter is almost invisible in the thick fog. Luke climbs out onto the long nose of the spacecraft as R2 pops out of his cubby hole on the back. The young warrior surveys the fog, which is barely pierced by the ship's landing lights. About all he can make out are some giant twisted trees nearby. R2 whistles, whistles anxiously. No, R2, you stay put. I'll have a look around. R2 lets out a short beep. As Luke moves along the nose, R2 loses balance and disappears with a splash into the boggy lake <laughs> at Tetsu. <laughs> okay. Boggy. All right. Boggy lake. Stop there. Yeah. And then can I do one last thing? Yeah. A reading from The Monsters of Loch Ness, The History and the Mystery, by Malcolm Robinson. Britain, too, has reports of strange creatures inhabiting lakes and lochs, the vast majority of which are purely mythical and have no bearing on fact. Myths that have grown arms and legs over the centuries. Indeed, some plays in the British Isles were purposely given strange creatures to ward off other wandering tribes. In those far-off days, Britain was invaded by many different warring races and sometimes it bore fruit to have a local monster in your backyard whose aim was to ward and frighten off prying eyes and invaders away from your territory. That said, there are some places within the British Isles whose locations are still to this day having tourists visit simply because they are. <laughs> Reports of... <laughs> Reports of strange creatures that have been seen there. Why should this be? Can we still possibly have creatures that here today in the 21st century that science has not as yet found and categorised? Well, let us not forget, and I've said it many times before, new species of plants, frogs, insects and more are being found on a daily basis across the planet. But can there really be large creatures inhabiting some British lakes and have there been since the formation of life? Exclamation mark. Well, if... <laughs> If the reports are anything to go by, then it would appear yes. But again, all we have are grainy photographs and eyewitness testimony, which cannot always be trusted. Just for your interest, Loch Nee is the largest body of water in the United Kingdom slash Northern Ireland, although Loch Ness is by far the largest by volume and contains nearly double the amount of water in all the lakes of England and Wales combined. The deepest lake in England is Wast Water, which descends to 249 feet and is located in Wastdale, which is a valley in the western part of the Lake District National Park. 